everyone to our NCAA Social Series, episode 42. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Jay Butler, who is the Deputy Director for Infectious Diseases at the CDC. And Commander Aaron Sauberschatz, who is at the CDC as well and in charge of the Community Interventions and Critical Populations Task Force. She takes the lead on that. Um, let me first start with um, you, uh, Dr. Sauberschatz, and, and basically providing for our audience sort of a general viewpoint of that long title. What does it mean in terms of how your job is done practically? Sure. So when CDC stands up an emergency response, we stand up different task forces and groups within a response to help help really dive into specific topics. So the task force that I'm in charge of, we focus in on the mitigation measures. So we've put together guidance of where you live, work, learn, and play, and what you can do to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and keep yourself, your friends, and your family safe. So this includes wearing a mask, washing your hands, watching your distance, and of course, cleaning and disinfection as well. And Dr. Butler, during this pandemic, what has been your role? So I actually served as the incident manager for uh, a period of uh, two months during May and June. And uh, actually before that was in a consultative role. And actually that's where I first became acquainted with uh, some of the work with uh, NCAA as uh, we began to address how do we strike the right balance between maintaining normal societal functions, which includes competitive sports, and keeping everyone as safe as possible. And uh, I continue on in that role uh, to be able to support all of the responders, including Dr. Sabershatz and her team on the task force. So Dr. Hainline, and first of all, I know I'm thrilled that we have representatives uh, from the CDC uh, to esteemed uh, colleagues here from the CDC because we've referenced the CDC so often. So now we get to actually hear from them. So from the NCAA perspective, how have you worked with the CDC? Well, it's been a, a, a wonderful uh, collaboration. Um, I actually was supposed to visit the CDC in March. So we had begun our discussions um, way back when and, and, um, and ever since then, you know, we've had very regular discussions, especially around the time when we're coming out with our resocialization documents, uh, uh, Aaron and Jay and, and, and really a group of CDC experts. Um, they're very gracious with their time and, and I ask them a lot of questions about where we may be going and they provide me the CDC references and, and really the CDC guidance on it. And all of our documents, we really try to uh, lock in very, very closely with where the CDC is. You know, and another great collaboration has, has been that NCA member schools have been providing some data to, to the CDC. There was a great study that was published January 8th uh, that was on quarantine data. And so that sort of collaboration is going on as well. So it, in essence, for our resocialization of collegiate sports, the CDC has just been a, a hugely important partner in terms of, of providing guidance to us. And we're going to dive deeper into all those topics here. Uh, during this episode. And Dr. Sabershatz, you know, one thing that has come up throughout the course uh, of the pandemic for our purposes uh, since last March was how sort of the marching orders from the CDC apply to sports, especially a population in college athletics that is testing regularly, uh, sometimes daily in certain conferences, or at a minimum three times a week, 
versus the general public. Um, so how did the CDC take that balance of, of what was put out there for this population versus the general public? Sure. So it's, it's almost unbelievable to think that just a year ago, um, up to the day, just about, that that's when our first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in the United States. Since then, we've had 24.3 million cases and over 400,000 deaths. So we really, in the last year, have learned something new about COVID-19 every single day. So with that, our guidance has been updated with the best available science and evidence that we have as we've gotten more data, as we've done more analyses, as we've learned, for instance, who's most at risk for severe illness from COVID-19. So as uh, the CDC, we're a non-regulatory agency, so we use science and data to share what we know, share our experiences and that data to decision makers to inform data-driven decision making. So for sports, we put forward the evidence and the data and what we knew about COVID-19, for instance, it being a respiratory illness, and thinking about sports and that you, you breathe heavier, you breathe deeper, and, and that that can actually project, therefore, COVID-19 respiratory droplets further, we worked, for example, with NCAA to help think through their guidance of how to keep athletes safe in a situation of playing sports where we know that there's going to be heavier breathing. Um, so that's, that's just an example of, of how we've collaborated and, and how we've really learned a lot in the last year. There's still more to learn, um, including around sports, but we, we provide the evidence and then in some of the leagues and NCAA have put in things such as testing strategies and masking and distancing to allow sports to continue as safe as possible. You know, Dr. Butler, I, I just gotta say that um, one thing, and I'm the only doctor, non-doctor I should say, in this grouping here. So, uh, um, you know, obviously I don't have the knowledge that the three of you do, but it drives me crazy that the general public sometimes does not grasp that things evolve and things can change. And you're all just grappling with this virus, as you said, just a year ago. Uh, and so Dr. Butler, if you could address just the way in terms of guidance and, and ways in which you must tackle this have changed from last March to almost a year later. Yeah, so Andy, uh, it's been a real steep learning curve. Uh, as Dr. Sabershatz has already described, this was a, a disease that was just getting on our radar uh, roughly a year ago. And so we had to put forward prevention guidelines based on the information that we had available at the time. One of the things that we knew very early on is that the virus that causes COVID-19 is very closely related to the SARS coronavirus. However, we learned over the first few months that it behaves very differently. Unlike the SARS virus, it can be transmitted by people who have no symptoms at all, and the peak of infectivity for those who develop symptoms is actually at onset. Uh, for SARS, there was very little, if any, evidence of transmission from people without symptoms, and the peak of infectivity was at the peak of symptoms. So that was very challenging. So some of the early approaches, such as really focusing on symptom screening, while still important, were not enough to be able to control spread of this virus. And we estimate that more than half of all transmissions actually occur from people without symptoms. So as we look at the ways that we keep people safe and as much as possible being able to carry on their lives as close to normal as possible, 
we really have to look at some of these issues such as wearing masks. It's not just a matter of wearing one if you uh, are at risk or if, uh, if you have symptoms, but it's really something that we all have to do. Uh, same goes for, for being distanced from other people. Uh, as an example, Dr. Sabershatz and I are together uh, at CDC, but we're actually in separate studios so that we could take off our masks and not be sharing uh, airspace. So those are the types of examples of where we apply what we've learned to be able to keep everyone as safe, safe as possible. And then uh, also environmental controls. Uh, the evidence is that if we're indoors, we're at higher risk than if we're outdoors. Uh, being able to have good ventilation likely reduces the risk of infection. And these are all things that we've learned that really apply to a sporting environment as well as uh, a working environment such as uh, what we're in right now. And, and Dr. Hainline, if you can, you know, I just want to revisit the way it evolved also for college athletics in that when all this started in the summer in terms of athletes being allowed to be back on campus, everything was outside. Weight rooms were put outside. And obviously, as the weather changed, you couldn't do that in a lot of places around this country. And so everyone sort of adapted in different ways. Maybe it was phases of, of student athletes going into the weight room or the gym or what have you. But how did that evolve in terms of the direction that as the virus changed, as the months went on, and as the weather changed, you also had to adapt in terms of the guidelines from around the country. Yeah, that's right, Andy. And uh, that, that's why, I mean, we, we put out over 10 documents, seven resocialization documents. I remember very early on when we were classifying sport, the, the transmission risk of sport, we were very, very concerned about, uh, you know, transmission surface to surface. Our very first document, we cautioned about sharing a football or football, sharing a basketball. We were very worried about indoor gymnastics and so forth. And then as we came to understand the, the, the mode of transmission better with the CEC guidance, and it, it became clearer that, well, yeah, surfaces are important, but the respiratory spread is much more important. But we were really quite concerned initially about football. We really didn't know, and so we had strict guidance in place for football. And, and then, you know, as we came to understand what happened on practice, and also with as the CEC really was coming to understand the difference between indoors and outdoors, it shifted even further. And so when we moved sports indoors and we looked at sports like uh, basketball and, and water polo, and, and we understood that that close proximity in an indoor environment was uh, going to be even more challenging than in an outdoor environment. So as the knowledge base has, has grown and so have our resocialization documents shifted. And, and so now it, you know, the, the maximum amount of testing we do is for those high transmission risk sports that are played indoor. So, you know, Dr. Halen raises a, a good point, Dr. Sabershatz, that how things have evolved. I mean, when this started, for example, um, people weren't sharing a tennis ball. They might be playing on, you know, opposite sides, obviously, of the tennis court, but they may have their own balls with their own initials. That has sort of faded out of the public space. Obviously, everyone's sharing a basketball right now because games are going on. Same with football. We just completed the college football season at the Division I level. Um, you know, you could go down the line. Where did it change where the actual object that you play with, um, you know, could be shared without fear of transmission? 
Yeah, I think really just as we learned more about the the virus, about SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, and there were really the whole world was working on figuring out all the ins and outs of this virus, and we still are. Um, we still don't know what the long-term effects of having COVID-19 are. Um, we, we updated guidance such as sharing equipment, realizing that that wasn't one of the main risk factors. That being said, we still recommend washing your hands if you're sharing equipment with other people. Um, and so again, it's just really, as we're learning more, adjusting our guidelines, making sure that people can be as safe as possible. Uh, as Dr. Butler talked about, one of the things we really learned about was that ventilation or outdoor versus indoor, which in the sports world, um, it, it really is sport dependent on how that affects your risk of, of of getting COVID-19 from possible teammates, coaches, or, or other uh, support staff. And Andy, if I could just add, I think it's an example of where the laboratory experiences and experiments are very important, but they don't always answer all of the questions. So ongoing uh, public health investigation, the epidemiological studies are really critical to be able to answer the questions about whether or not what's been observed in the laboratory really plays out in real life. And as Dr. Sabashatz has described, one of the things that we learned was that sharing uh, sports equipment, at least in terms of things like uh, passing a basketball from one person to another, is not nearly as high a risk as uh, sharing more, uh, more the type of equipment that you may uh, wear or that might uh, be more likely to be contaminated with, uh, with uh, respiratory secretions. How, how did you both balance, um, you know, the different attitudes around the country and, you know, that certain places in the country, uh, and we're actually seeing this now during the college basketball season, um, you know, for example, you know, one school in the Northeast are making their players play with a mask on. Uh, the majority obviously are not. Uh, some high schools are making their players play with masks on. Majority are not. Some places allow fans, some do not. Um, how do you deal with that different interpretations of the guidelines that have been put forth by the CDC? Well, Andy, maybe I could start with that. Uh, first of all, some of those differences may be entirely appropriate uh, because we do recommend that uh, those decisions be based on the local disease activity. As the, the risk of disease locally begins to decline, it may be okay to be able to uh, liberalize the, the mitigation strategies that would impact a uh, sporting venue. Uh, the other challenge, of course, is that uh, there's, you know, remains some skepticism about uh, what the, the pandemic really is, what the virus is, uh, and that's always the challenge in working with a, a natural disaster, if you will, that's caused by a microbiological agent. It's not like uh, a hurricane or an earthquake where we all experience the same thing. Uh, so it's, it's a learn, it's an, there's an individual almost psychological effect of learning to understand that this is a real threat but it may not be the same all across the country. So oftentimes we'll see data, uh, there's like a little scoreboard always on the, the corner of some of the news networks showing the number of cases in the past 24 hours. Well, in some parts of the country, uh, that's a very real number because the rates are, are extremely high. In other areas, it may not be so high. And I, I think sometimes because people 
don't experience that same impact at that time in their own community, they may be a little more skeptical. And, and that, that's where we have to be uh, patient, but also as consistent as possible in our messaging so that people at the local level, as well as in their personal lives, can make the best decisions possible. You know, and I also would add that a lot of this is a personal decision too, where some game officials have chosen to mask up while they're officiating. It's not mandated when they're running up and down, but some have chosen to do so. Um, so Dr. Hainline, a couple of things obviously also have evolved and that is the contact tracing and the quarantine. Um, if you can walk us through, and then I wanna get the reaction uh, from our two guests from the CDC here on how things changed initial 14 days versus you know, there could be times when it is seven or is it 10, whether you're positive or if you're just someone who had an exposure. Yeah, so, so importantly, and, and even in our last resocialization document, we, we make it clear the CDC still recommends 14 days of quarantine, but then they give a provision whereby there may be consideration for 10-day quarantine if there are uh, no symptoms or uh, seven-day quarantine if you test negative on day seven. So we put that out there in our, our document that made it clear that uh, this was a decision not to be made by the member school, but by the local public health authority. They, they ultimately uh, will, will have authority over whether the quarantine is going to be seven, 10, or, or 14 days. Um, you know, but some of that, uh, you know, uh, decision-making was uh, aided, I think, in part by uh, the NCAA 20-member school sent uh, really intense quarantine data to the CDC in a de-identified manner and, 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 and they analyzed it. And so, but there were other important lessons learned from that. And, and, and I, I think in the document that they published, 12% of athletes that had to go into quarantine had to do so because of a possible exposure in sport. But 88% were for social reasons, either going out or uh, you know, going to a party, uh, living in a dormitory, uh, things like that. So, so you know, that has has shifted as as we've learned more about it. But but there's still, um, it's it's not a black and white issue that someone can get out of quarantine ten days or seven days. It still really depends on on the local circumstances. Dr. Sabashatz. Yeah, I think exactly that. Uh, the 14 day is still the recommendation. Um, on our website, we talk about the data that support the 10 day or the seven day, but it is up to the local health department to, to make the decision of, of what, how many days of quarantine are, are required for their locality. And Dr. Butler, how would you define a close contact? So, the definition of a, a close contact has been uh, being within six feet of someone for more than 15 minutes. Now, those are not hard and fast uh, rules that, you know, if you're five and a half feet away, you're at high risk. And if you're six and a half feet away, you're at no risk of all. These are uh, basically um, guidelines that uh, can help decide who is at higher risk versus those who uh, may be at lower risk. Um, we will always be updating those guidelines as more information becomes available and uh, as the, the, uh, the science evolves and we learn more about uh, this virus. As we are talking about quarantine, that's, that's a great example of where we've been able to get more data to look at 
what is the frequency of distribution of periods of time after a discrete exposure before someone uh, is infected or develops symptoms? And that's how we've been able to develop some guidelines for shorter periods of quarantine, which hopefully will be uh, more practical and acceptable to people to be able to uh, conform to. You know, and I want to just follow up on that one point in a second, but what if the two people are masked uh, with, you know, and, and, and within that six feet, but and they got the 15 minutes, but they're both wearing masks during that contact. Well, masks definitely reduce the risk of spread. Uh, and we are still evaluating how that can uh, be incorporated into the, the decision about whether or not a significant exposure occurred. And there's some work that we've actually done with the uh, National Football League uh, that uh, they have been able to study this using uh, some tracking devices to be able to determine how close some of the players have been to one another. And uh, as they began to see some transmission among players, uh, we worked with them to develop uh, a higher level of containment, uh, which included factoring in the use of masks in defining what a close contact is. And these are, these are areas where we're continuing to, to learn. And uh, I think it's uh, an exciting area because it's uh, another part of how the learning process translates into how we get life back more uh, like what it, closer to normal uh, in how we adjust to living with uh, this, this pandemic and this virus. So Dr. Salvershots, you know, there obviously is quarantine fatigue. Uh, and we've seen this with college athletes that have had, you know, multiple and multiple times where they've had to go back into quarantine, you know, for contact tracing purposes. I mean, some teams, it's been three plus weeks cumulative. Um, what has the data shown since the pandemic was known uh, in terms of, you know, when someone still could be contagious or contract the virus beyond that five to seven day period of a contact. It's, it's fairly small, Andy. So I think the, the difference between the, the, 10 per, the 10 day and the 14 days is only roughly 5%. Right. Dr. Buck, Butler can confirm that. Um, but it's, so it's a small percentage, but it, there's still that risk that's there, which is why we recommend the 14 days as the gold standard. But understanding that that might not always be feasible in certain situations, um, again, it's up to the local public health department to determine what level of quarantine that they have implemented for their area. Um, I did want to jump back on one point that often will get misinterpreted. Uh, for close contact, it's a cumulative total of 15 minutes. Yes. So we've often seen uh, schools or, or even sports leagues say, well, if you're only together for five minutes, 10 times that then you should be good because you were only together for five minutes. But it's actually adding all of those exposures up for a total of 15 minutes being a close contact. So if you were um, a close contact less than six feet by someone for five minutes three times, that equals 15 minutes. So just wanted to add that point of clarification because that's something we've seen misinterpreted. Yes, the clock does not reset uh, when you step outside of that six-foot zone. Uh, I want to address testing here momentarily as we get closer to wrapping up. But Dr. Hainline, I want to bring you back because I did mention the sort of quarantine fatigue. And I've had countless coaches and players that I've talked to literally almost daily, and they all want to keep playing to right. a person. They all want to keep playing. And some have opted out, and that's fine. 
uh, and no one's going to be judged if they decide to opt out regardless of sport. But there's no question. There is mental fatigue when they have to go back into quarantine. What have you heard on your end in terms of the mental health aspect of when student-athletes have had to go back into quarantine and have had to deal with it multiple times during this year? Well, we, we've heard a, a, a few things, Andy, and we've actually been studying that as well. You know, we mentioned uh, even a few months ago that, that mental health symptoms um, have increased considerably in COVID, especially depression and anxiety. But I think what's been worrying us more recently is, is this sense of fatigue, like, you know, you just can't keep on like this. You know, we saw that there were um, many athletes that said, you know, we'd rather not play in a postseason contest. And, and, and part of that was just from the fatigue as well. So it, it's an issue, you know, because as an athlete, you're always gearing up. You're, you're ready to go out. You're, you're ready to do your high-level competition. And, you know, if you become injured, that one, that's one thing. But when it's something that's out of your control, uh, that makes it more challenging. But on the other hand, you, you, you know, you look at athletes' behavior, and I think that they understand that if they aren't on guard 24-7, they're going to be at risk of developing COVID. So we actually have seen that the student-athletes' behavior has consistently been improving because they, they know this isn't just about what happens in athletics. They have to be masked at all times, and they have to avoid situations, especially close encounters or, or being around people who are not wearing masks. So you're seeing two kinds of shifting dynamics, the fatigue on the one hand, but the better behavior on the other. You know, and, and I'm just curious if either doctor feels comfortable commenting on that, that um, it's one thing obviously to have uh, regulations and guidelines, and then there's the practical side right. of that fatigue of going back into quarantine uh, if unfortunately you have multiple contacts in a row, uh, maybe to no fault of your own. Dr. Butler? Oh, I'm sorry, Andy. I um, wasn't sure who that was directed to. <laughs> why, why don't you, why don't you do that over again? No, 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 pick it up. We can, we can edit it. Okay. Uh, so actually, could you repeat the question? Because I, I got a little lost there. It... So, so Dr. Butler and, and Dr. Sabershatz, um, you know, there's the practical side and there's uh, obviously the guideline side, which is, you know, it is safer to have a longer quarantine. We get that. We know that. But then there's the practical side of the fatigue, especially of young people who have had to go back into isolation, uh, sometimes by no fault of their own. You know, they just happen to unfortunately be near someone who has COVID. So how do you handle that, Dr. Butler? Yeah, so Andy, that's an excellent point because athletes love the game. The higher the level of competition, the more there's going to be a strong drive to be able to compete, to be able to train, practice, and uh, do your, your, your very best at the, the sport that you love. So, uh, and also, we're all tired of the pandemic. We're all tired of uh, quarantine and the, the social isolation. So these are very real issues. Uh, and it's part of the reason in sport, sometimes there's a, a extra role for testing to be able to monitor for uh, infection that might be transmitted 
uh, through people without symptoms. And uh, when resources are available, some teams have been able to do that testing on a, a regular basis to be able to reduce the risk of transmission and to be able to isolate those who are infected uh, even before they have any symptoms, to reduce that risk of spread, which then also reduces the likelihood that others would have to go into quarantine after an exposure. Commander? Yeah, Andy, I think um, I, was, I was a college athlete, so I understand the, the rigor and the, the training schedule um, that, that goes into being a student athlete. And I think one thing that we've all seen, as Dr. Butler said, is we're, we're all tired of this, this new way of life and, and having to adjust the, the activities and the things that we do and, and what we love. I know I'm, I'm still, uh, I still train, I still get out there, and one thing I've done just to help with how much time I've spent at home and, and the hours in front of the computer is adjust my schedule so that I'm doing um, exercises at home or in a, in a safe place where I can run outside. Sometimes that still requires running with a mask. If you're in quarantine, the rules are a little different, but there, there's been such a, a boom of, of online fitness classes and things that you can do to still stay active, still stay strong, and still cross-train for your sport. And I think that that overall wellness and taking care of yourself can, can help boost your morale and your wellness and, and your mental state, even if you are quarantined um, in, in your apartment or in your dorm room. So those, those are things that CDC has recommended all along. Um, with the pandemic is, is taking care of yourself, being physically active, checking in with each other. I think that's something else that uh, teammates can do is rely on each other to check in. If you've got some teammates that are quarantined or, or perhaps within the athletic program, find ways to connect, keep people motivated, keep people knowing that they're, we're all looking to have people back um, when it's safe to do so. So I want to go around the, the group here on testing um, because the major issue going forward with the championships that will be happening uh, in March and April, and then obviously uh, we may be hopefully in a different place in, when we get to the spring, but let's just deal with March and April. And that is, I'll start with you, Dr. Butler and Dr. Savershots, and then I want Dr. Hainline to jump in here, which is if you have been positive and you are outside of the 90-day window, uh, so let's say, hypothetically, you were COVID positive in September, October. Um, there's a real concern with a lot of these, you know, college coaches right now about, oh, you know, they haven't had to be tested because they're within the 90 days. Now they're going to move past the 90 days. Why should they get tested again and run the risk of maybe being positive um, but not carrier, but not infectious or contagious, I should say? Uh, but yet being positive uh, because they already had the virus back in September, October. Yeah, so Andy, it's a great question. It's one of those areas where we continue to learn more. Uh, first of all, one of the challenges with a positive test is while it doesn't prove that you are infectious, it also does not prove that you are not. So a positive test means isolation, no matter uh, when it's obtained. The issue of reinfection is an area where we continue to, to learn. Uh, you know, we, as we look at other coronaviruses, and these are the coronaviruses that cause more common cold-type symptoms, we know that people are reinfected every few years. We don't know yet for SARS coronavirus 2 
how often reinfection may occur. Again, it's a virus that's only been infecting the human species for a little over a year now. So we continue to learn. And we are continuing to analyze the data to determine what is the optimal period to say it's very, very unlikely that this is a reinfection. But the tricky thing about this virus, it throws us a lot of curveballs, and recently it's uh, actually given us a fastball to the head with the emergence of some of the variant viruses that may behave differently. So, you know, the issue of what we say today about 90 days and uh, the risk of reinfection is something to, to, to monitor closely because we, will, we are monitoring closely the emergence of these new variants which may actually increase the risk of reinfection. And uh, I know that's uh, very discouraging to all of us, but it's a uh, reason for ongoing concern. So if I could uh, mix in another sports analogy, uh, it's too early to throw in the towel on this uh, pandemic. Uh, it's not over yet. Dr. Salva-Schatz? To add, Dr. Butler um, answered that perfectly. Well, so Dr. Hainline, We've, we've talked about this. Uh, the concern that you know athletes who have tested positive um, earlier than the 90 days and now will have to be retested beyond the 90 days. What will be or what are uh, the rules right now uh, for championships um, if you have tracked the virus and your 90-day clock is up? Well, if your 90-day clock is up, then you're back in the testing pool. Uh, and of course, we go back if you're within 90 days and you have COVID-like symptoms and an infectious disease specialist or infectious uh, control officer cannot explain these symptoms by anything but COVID, we would retest the athlete then as well. But after 90 days, you're, you're back in the pool and there's no questions asked. If we look at data from uh, the professional sports, and, and they have a lot of data on this, and, and we do as well, it's unusual to test positive after that 90 days. You know, people talk about having the, the remnants of the virus that, that are there, and that leads to a positive test. We've seen it in some immunocompromised individuals, but it, it is really unusual. And, and so we're sticking uh, to that. So, you know, we've developed guidelines for our championship, for example, that, that, are, that are coming up in, in the spring, and, and, and that's the rule of engagement. And, and lastly here, I want to get back to the vaccines. Uh, obviously, we hope more people get vaccinated, uh, but in the short term, um, the, the reality is that before the winter championships, and I'm talking about that March, early April period, the population that would get vaccinated would probably be anyone who's compromised or you know, pot potentially coaches who are 65 and older or personnel who fit that population. So, Dr. Butler, if those people have been vaccinated by the time we get to a championship, um, what would be the CDC recommendation for whether or not vaccinated people, fully vaccinated, I guess, and you tell me otherwise, uh, should continue to be tested? So that's a great question. And those are guidelines that are still in development uh, and uh, may actually be different than what we would say today by the time uh, March and April roll around. At this point in time, uh, my recommendation would be to still do the testing as we continue to uh, evaluate the impact of uh, potential variant viruses as well as uh, the protection 
by vaccine against uh, asymptomatic infection. The trials that evaluated the two mRNA vaccines that are currently in use did not assess the impact of the vaccine for preventing infection without symptoms. They were highly efficacious for preventing illness caused by SARS coronavirus 2, and particularly severe illness. So until we have a little more of that information, uh, my recommendation would be to continue to test, and we'll have uh, more formal recommendations available as more information becomes available. Dr. Salvershatz, I want to give you the last word here, just an overall view on where we are and, um, you know, hopefully where we will be as we progress here. You're a former athlete. Um, you know, as, as we have to move forward to the championships at the end of this winter and as we head into the spring. Yeah, we're all cautiously optimistic that we are going to be getting the COVID-19 pandemic under control. Um, we, with the vaccine, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel is long, but we are encouraging everyone to get the vaccine as soon as they are able to. Um, my parents just got their first dose last week, so it, it really encouraged me and, and made me feel better that they're, they're that one step closer to having that protection. Uh, we all want to get back to the way of, of life as it was um, in 2019, but I think it's also an opportunity uh, when, when you lose a game, you learn from it. And so I think we all have to reflect on the pandemic and see what we, we learned through this experience and how we can be better, um, how we can build, how we can take that forward um, and just be a, a, stronger, a stronger nation, stronger neighbors and stronger community. And lastly, Dr. Hainline, um, you know, we've talked about this before, but I want you to sort of put an exclamation point on this. And that is that as frustrating and disappointing as it is when a positive pops and a team has to go and pause, how much does that show, though, that the system is working because it's being caught and hopefully it's preventing any kind of wide outbreak? Well, it's yeah, great question, Andy. I mean, when we are testing so regularly in athletics, and if you look at football and basketball data, uh, more than 80% of the scheduled contests have gone on, and this is with very, very regular testing. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, we often hear about the canceled events, but not the ones that are going on, and they've been going on safely. And at the same time, we've developed a cardiac registry. It's the largest COVID cardiac registry in sport. We're gaining enormous information from that, some of which will be published in, in, in a couple of weeks. So we, we feel good overall about uh, where, where we've been. And, and in some ways, one could say that um, the way that sport has resocialized can even be considered a model for society you know we have not taken any testing supplies away from individuals and if we're really advocating strongly for the best behavior and, and and for prudent testing and and maybe that's a way that that can serve as a metaphor for how other segments of society can open up successfully as well while we're waiting for the vaccine wow so i appreciate all three of you of course i think this has been uh, incredibly educational informational and hopefully uh, as uh, dr Sabershot said, you know, it's, it's a long tunnel, but there's light that we can see, hopefully at the end. Dr. Hainline, Dr. Butler, Commander Sabershot, appreciate all of your time. And as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series, where we have all our social series archived. I'm Andy Katz for the NCAA. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe, everyone.